Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. I'm today's host, Megan Payne, and with me today we have Kyle Hayes. Hey, Kyle, thanks for switching chairs with me today, and uh, how's it going? Thanks for running the show. It's going good. We're up early to Peach Pod. We never Peach Pod in the morning. I know, it's a little weird. I have coffee. I'm actually drinking coffee instead of my normal adult beverage. I'm drinking warm tea in my frozen DC hellscape. Oof. Anyhow... We're back in your feeds and we're trying a little something new on Peach Pod. Um, you're going to hear from us later this week and on Thursdays every week going forward with our regular podcast, but also with some new panelists. And then early in the week on Mondays or Tuesdays, you're going to get the bonus episodes. And um, on these episodes, we may dive into, you know, whatever we think is uh, important for you guys to hear about that may not be super pressing in the news or it may be. Um, so this is just going to kind of be some additional information that doesn't fit super well into our um, typical cadence. On today's episode, we discuss changes to the Senate rules on reporting sexual harassment and why these rules seem tailored to help senators avoid accountability for their actions. We also discuss the removal of Republican Senator Renee Unterman from the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Was this another example of Republicans limiting opportunities for women in, women in their caucus, or did she get ousted for other reasons? Then Kyle sits down with Brenton Mock, staff writer at City Lab, to talk about last year's fight over cityhood down in Stockbridge. You might remember us briefly mentioning that Eagles Landing, a gated golf course neighborhood, tried to form its own city by taking land from the already existing city of Stockbridge. This push began right after the city elected its first all-black leadership team on the mayor and city council. Supporters of the new city claim that race has nothing to do with their desire to have their own city. They just wanted to attract some upscale dining like Cheesecake Factory, which, okay. So stay tuned uh, for Kyle's interview with Brenton over the future of cityhood in the state and the role race has played in the movement for the last two decades. So first, let's start with the women of the state senate rebuking their leadership. Kyle... What happened? Um, I know this week um, committee assignments came out. What happened with the distribution of committee assignments? So the biggest story on committee assignments this week was the removal of uh, State Senator Renee Unterman from the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Uh, but another flashpoint in this uh, setup on committees was that Republicans claimed that they had doubled the number of women who chair committees in the state Senate. Uh, but Two of these women, uh, both Democrats, Donzella James and Jen Jordan, chair committees where basically nothing gets done, nothing of importance goes through these committees. And Jen Jordan, the new chair of the Senate Special Judiciary Committee, chairs a committee where every member of the committee is a Democrat. So it is very clear from the way that they've set this up that Republican leadership in the state Senate would not put any meaningful legislation through a committee with no Republicans on it. And so I think it was Elena Parent who described Republicans as warehousing Democrats in these committees that do nothing. But it's like incredibly transparent that that's exactly what you're doing when a committee has all Democrats in a Republican-led chamber. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And I guess my biggest uh, concern about it being kind of the resident fit, well, I guess a lot of us have feminist views on this pod. It seems really anti-woman of the GOP what were did you have that same feeling as well or was this more of a um like political affiliation concern for you 
So I think it's emblematic of, of a few things that the Republicans defended themselves in the distribution of committee assignments here by saying that gender had nothing to do with it. There are only two Republican women in the Senate Republican caucus, which is I think is probably the appropriate place to talk about gender in this context. Um, but there are only two Republican women that they could put to chair committees. Now, one of these women is Renee Unterman, longtime chair of Senate Health and Human Services, and we can get into some other reasons by about why she might have been removed. Uh, but the other woman is Kay Kirkpatrick. I mean, she is the new chair of the Ethics Committee. Uh, but as we'll talk about in the second part of this segment, the two women in the Senate Republican caucus were split on voting for a rules change that changed how sexual harassment complaints are handled in the state Senate. Kay Kirkpatrick voted for the rules change and Renee Unterman voted against it. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot that goes into this. Uh, but Renee Unterman is a chair that has found herself on the wrong side of Senate leadership on this uh, change in sexual harassment rules and on some other health care issues we can get into. And Kay Kirkpatrick has found herself on the right side and she was given the chairmanship of a more prominent committee as a result. Gotcha. Um, I also thought it was interesting that Unterman was told personally that, quote, I did not have the skill set to be able to handle such a complicated issue. And um, she declined to say who questioned her ability, but she just said that it was someone with, quote, a very high authority. And I also found it interesting that Unterman, who is a female nurse, was replaced in that particular committee by a doctor who happens to be male. It just, again, feels very much so like siloing women out of things. Yeah, I think this gets into the the substantive issue that might also be at play here. Um, so Renee Unterman has long opposed changes to some hospital regulations that are referred to as certificate of need. Um, and basically a short version of what that is, is it's rules that decide when new hospital facilities and other healthcare facilities can open. And hospitals tend to oppose changes to those rules because they believe that new players coming into the healthcare market would eat into the hospital's bottom line by siphoning off services that are high value. I mean, Renee Enterman has long opposed those changes. Ben Watson, the doctor who is the new chair of Senate Health and Human Services, supports some changes to those things. And so this is the other piece of this that's at issue. You know, it's it's interesting to see Renee Enterman be held up as kind of a champion for women in this context. I think she's a somewhat conflicted champion. She said herself in an interview with Jim Galloway that she sponsored every one of the major abortion restrictions in recent years. Um, she also became a punching bag on cable TV when Samantha B's show attacked her for blocking a bill that would have forced testing of a backlog of a backlog of rape kits sponsored by Scott Holcomb. You know, but she did band together with other women in the Senate and and she looked to sort of resurrect an alliance that has since kind of gone dormant of women of either party in the Senate banding together on certain issues. Um, and so she got women in the Senate to come to her aid and talk about this distribution of chairmanships in the committees in the well this week. And, and this is a problem that is not just limited to her, but but as we've talked about, is an issue for uh, for other women in the chamber, particularly the Democratic women. The way this was originally presented in the news, 
it felt like it was being presented as a bunch of women coming into the Senate well and basically causing a scene as uh, a scene and basically having a giant bitch fest. And I really think that their concerns have some merit. Um, it's been talked about that these women are being treated as tokens and maybe they could refute that by not participating in these committees. But at the same time, if they don't, they're then gutting their own voice, their own power, even if it's limited. So what are your thoughts on how these women have essentially reacted to this? I mean, I think this is what you have to do if you don't have any formal levers of power. I mean, clearly a formal lever of power is being taken away from Renee Unterman. And Jen Jordan, in her placement, she is it's very transparent that she is given no formal lever of power um, in terms of chairing a committee where it's all Democrats. Um, so I, I think that this is kind of what you have to do. I, th- I think the other issue here for Republicans and why this looks bad for them is that Renee Unterman pointed out that, you know, it's not so much that th- there just aren't enough Republican women to to have them chair a lot of committees in this instance. And so most of them, when you have, when all of the chairs of important committees are going to be Republicans, they're overwhelmingly going to be men. And so I think it's a question for Republicans of how are they supporting women in running for office in on their side of the aisle um, so that when you get to this situation of distributing committee assignments, you have some more women you could give these slots to. It's also clear that by warehousing these women into these committees that do nothing, um, they're further sidelining, sidelining Democratic women and their ability to take action. You know, the, the Senate could appoint more women, Democratic women, to positions within committees and not give essentially positions of power or chairmanships or things like that. So it just seems to further divorce Democratic women from the ability to have a voice and to make decisions. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, that's one way in which, like, these committees, you know, despite rising partisanship in the state legislature, the committees are still... Or, or the way legislation is like built in the committees is that you still kind of have to divide the work across members of the committee. Everybody gets input. And I don't think that the, you know, there's partisan hot button issues where the parties are divided and Republicans are not going to listen to Democrats on things. But on a lot of other sort of non-partisanly divisive issues, Republicans and Democrats do go back and forth about how legislation is created. And so it is, you know, it is interesting to me, or it's another symbol of, how dismissive they are of women in the chamber when even if you're not going, I mean, you're obviously not going to make a, a committee, a majority Democratic committee when you're a Republican majority. That would give them the authority over who the chair is and how, you know, which bills live and die on votes. Like, you're obviously not going to do that. But you could empower somebody like Jen Jordan, who they at least seem to sort of nominally acknowledge has some skills in in the legal area, um, nominally empower her as sort of a prominent member of the regular Judiciary Committee. And and that, I think, is another example. I mean, we'll get into the second part here on sexual harassment rule changes. Um, it's just obvious that they're being dismissive of, of women in the chamber. Definitely. And so let's go ahead and move into the sexual harassment rule changes. Um, some of the rules that have been changed um, include a massive change on a time limit, Complaints 
overconduct has to have occurred two years or less in order to be able to be reported. Um, there are also no complaints allowed during election season. There are some confidentiality provisions that have been added, and as well as there have been some different behavior rules that have been um, kind of casually invoked as, um, you know, kind of an additional aspect of these. Kyle, what what were your initial reactions to the rule changes? I am shocked at how transparent this is. Um, so this builds on the context that uh, State Senator David Schaefer ran for lieutenant governor this last time around. He lost in the primary to Jeff Duncan, who is now the lieutenant governor. He won the primary and he won the general. Um, one of the things that Dog Schaefer during his run for lieutenant governor was a complaint issued against him that a lobbyist that he formerly worked with to get a bill done um, said that he harassed her. And I think the complaint dated back to like 2011. The 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 thing that was just like the most transparent as it relates to this is the new time limit, the two year window for reporting any complaints that if, if the behavior is older than two years, the ethics committee is not going to accept the complaint. And then the co- no complaints allowed during election season. This basically means that from the time you qualify as a candidate, which is well before when the election actually happens, through the certification of the election, which as we saw at the end of the 2018 election, that certification period can drag on for a long time too. You can't file any complaint, or it, it appears that you can't file any complaints and that the ethics committee can't make any ruling on those complaints. So you get this sort of like temporary amnesty if you, which is how Jim Galloway referred to it. If you are running for office, you could basically throw your hat in to run for something and bar any complaints from being filed against you during that time period. And, and does that pause the two-year time limit or? That to me is unclear. So State Senator Zara Karinchak, she's a new Democrat from Decatur. She went into the well and said that it did shorten the time frame. So that basically, yeah, you could eat up a lot of that two-year window by being a candidate for office and really limit the ability of somebody to file a complaint against you. Um, and that's the part, like, you know, after what we saw last year in the 2018 midterms where more women ran than ever before, where we have more women elected to the legislature than ever before, and where we as a nation had this big debate over sexual harassment and sexual assault as it related to the Kavanaugh hearings in the Supreme Court, for them to basically have turned around and, I guess, learn nothing from this, um, it's just really blatant that they don't really give a shit about what happened last year. That seems very true. And I think the thing that's really concerning about this is a lot of women wait to report because they're not sure what their avenues are or what they should do, or quite frankly, they just need to take care of themselves first. Um, and sometimes that takes a long time. I have heard some stories of people waiting to report years and years and years because they wanted to be in a position where they felt like they were mentally and emotionally stable to be able to deal with what comes with reporting. Because as we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings and Dr. Blasey Ford, it's it takes its toll. And this just completely undermines any sort of human element to needing some time. And politically, I think it puts uh, the lieutenant governor in a bad spot. I mean, Jeff Duncan was kind of a beneficiary of this complaint against Schaefer, at least in a political sense. And Jeff Duncan said that he did not know. He's he's the leader of the Senate, but it's sort of an interesting 
he's not a member of the Senate. So he, I don't believe got to vote on the rules changes and he apparently was not aware that the rules were being changed. So he tried to say that he would make an effort to review these things and bring it back. But, you know, he can say that in the paper and then nothing comes of it, which seems likely. I mean, this happened last week and we haven't seen any additional movement in that direction um, as we're recording on Monday of this week. So, you know, it's just, I think it's bad politics for them. I think it's bad in terms of the environment that it creates for, for women serving in the, uh, the Senate serving not only as legislators, but as staff, um, any of the other staff that is involved with the business of the Senate, um, this applies to, to them as well, or, or it's those, it's those sorts of people that are doing sort of administrative work in the Senate who could be harassed by a Senator or a lobbyist or somebody else involved with the Senate. I mean, these are the people that are involved and I, and I think it, you know, it, it's going in the wrong direction. Um, when, you would have thought 2018 would have been a lesson that we shouldn't be going in the wrong direction anymore. Exactly. And a lot of this is hidden in some rule changes that actually look pretty good on paper. Um, Some of the unsiloing of how this is handled to ensure that it can remain impartial, the blatant non-retaliation additions, that sort of thing. Like that all looks really good. But then you see these other additions and it completely guts everything that looks good about it. Well, and that well, and to clarify, so some of those, uh, I think you're probably drawing from the changes that Brian Kemp made across executive agencies, the non siloing. So it, it's interesting that Kemp, Kemp issued an executive order on his first day in office, uh, based on an AJC investigation of how sexual harassment complaints are handled in executive agencies. And he issued an executive order that basically takes all the silos away, creates one process for all of the executive agency offices. But that's one branch of government. It's an independent branch. Kemp has, in in essence, Kemp has ultimate authority over that as the governor. The state senate is a separate branch um, where the state senators themselves have full authority over the rules of that chamber. And so, like, Kemp went in the right direction, even after he got a lot of heat for how I think he uh, sort of dismissively handled uh, sexual harassment complaints against a fundraiser of his. He seems to have gone in the right direction on that while the state Senate has, you know, reversed and gone the wrong way. And let's talk a little bit about some of the vague changes for behavior rules. Um, Did you, what were your thoughts on um, the new requirements for behavior in the chamber are quote Senate environs. So these seemed, I'd sort of put like the changes to sexual harassment rules in one bucket, and then these other behavior rules in a separate bucket. These seemed aimed at limiting protests and demonstrations in the Senate gallery and the lobbies and the hallways around the chamber. I'm sure you remember, Megan, there was a uh, Nikema Williams, who is in the legislature, she was arrested at a demonstration last year. These these rules seem designed to stop that sort of action. And I think that they're interesting in this context of Republicans being nervous about losing political power in the suburbs and in the way the districts are drawn. That means they're losing numbers in the legislature. Their majorities are not nearly as large as they were just a couple cycles ago. And so you probably will see more demonstrations at the Capitol, more 
opportunities for activists to get up there and 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 fight on issues that they care about. And these rules are meant to limit their ability to do that. Gotcha. And yeah, the way all this came out, I've got, I think I've got some of these issues a little bit conflated. But um, this past week of the Senate was pretty confusing to those of us who were pretty new to this uh, whole cycle. What, what were your thoughts on that, Kyle? There, I mean, there was a lot going on. Um, it's unclear. You know, we have new leadership in the Senate with Jeff Duncan, and then we have newly empowered uh, people in Senate leadership who are not the lieutenant governor who feel like they probably have a little bit more room to push things like these sexual harassment rule changes, the committee chair changes, the behavior rule changes, um, because Casey Cagle was the longtime leader of that chamber and I think exerted a lot more control over it. And Jeff Duncan's a new new leader who didn't come up through the Senate. He's a guy who only served a few years in the House before he ran for lieutenant governor. So I, I think that that explains why we've had this like sudden shift in things going on. We just have some new people in charge. Um, but I, I think it remains to be seen politically what the impact will be and if the uh, good old boys club that seems to be empowered in the Senate at the moment um, doesn't invite some blowback on their Republican colleagues at the ballot box in 2020. So with that, let's move into Kyle's interview with Britton Mock uh, with City Lab to talk about cityhood down in Stockbridge. Take it away, Kyle. All right. So we're now joined by Brenton Mock, a staff writer at City Lab, to talk about the cityhood movement in Atlanta and what it means for you, depending on which side of those city limits you live on. Brenton, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so let's just start with the first question of, of what is cityhood and what is this cityhood movement that has taken place in and around the metro Atlanta area for the last couple of decades? So cityhood is, is basically when a place becomes a city. Specifically in uh, the suburbs of Atlanta, a lot of the counties um, that surround the city of Atlanta have um, what's called unincorporated territories, which means uh, basically that they haven't been municipalized. So, you know, they're part of the county, but not part of any particular city. So, you know, basically cityhood is when one of those unincorporated uh, territories uh, decides that they, you know, want to municipalized become a city. It's been accelerating the trend towards cityhood. It has been kind of accelerating over the last 15 years uh, with uh, just a little bit over a dozen uh, new cities that have been created since 2000. And, you know, it's just, it's been a real kind of controversial movement, mainly because it's kind of fostered and fueled by segregation that already exists throughout Metro Atlanta. And so what, you know, what, what city could often ends up doing, you know, in most cases, it's usually a, a super white, super wealthy neighborhood or enclave that wants to become its own city. And, and it's usually doing that so that, uh, or it's often doing that so, it, uh, you know, in some ways because it doesn't want to have to share uh, tax resources with other parts of the county, particularly other cities. So let's walk through sort of the latest instance of a cityhood push in the Atlanta region. Um, and that was when uh, the city of 
or that was when residents in a community called Eagles Landing tried to form a city in the Stockbridge area. Um, so what is Eagles Landing? And from your reporting, why did the residents of Eagles Landing think that they needed to create their own city? In Henry County, which is just south of south of the city of Atlanta, basically you have a city called Stockbridge. Um, and it's a weird looking city because it's, it, it's not, it doesn't have any particular kind of shape, right? It's just kind of these splotches of land <laughs> that are connected at certain points. And so, you know, Stockbridge kind of, that particular area kind of fluctuates between unincorporated areas and areas that belong to the city of Stockbridge. Uh, one of the areas in there is uh, uh, a neighborhood called Eagles Landing, which is anchored by this huge uh, golf course club, right, country club. Um, called the Eagle Landing Country Club, um, and basically this, this is the, the the wealthier one of the wealthier neighborhoods, really, in all of Metro Atlanta, definitely in, in sub, southern Metro Atlanta, and it's spread across unincorporated areas, and it's part of it is also in the city of Stockbridge, and what the people in this neighborhood wanted to do was start their own city. But um, not only using the unincorporated parts, which is perfectly legal, but they also wanted to include a lot of parts from the city of Stockbridge um, and have that be included in this new city that would be called Eagles Landing. It was a really controversial, unprecedented thing because, once again, you know, you can only, you know, up to this point, you could only form a city out of unincorporated area. You couldn't really take, you know, you couldn't take land from another city to start a city. Uh, but that's what Eagles Landing was threatening to do. And they, they got basically their petition for a city to a ballot, which was voted on on November 7th. Um, and fortunately, uh, that ballot uh, did not survive. They, the people voted it down. Uh, but, it you know, it, it would have been kind of devastating in a lot of different ways. Um, and there was a lot of concern that it would, uh, that that kind of cityhood uh movement where you're taking land from other cities that that itself would have uh, kind of metastasized across Georgia and, and, and just made things really prickly for a lot of cities in, in the state. Yeah, so Governor Deal uh, touted Georgia frequently during his time as governor as being one of the few states to maintain their AAA bond rating throughout the Great Recession, something that he said was important because it allowed the state to borrow to finance major projects and borrow at reasonable rates. Uh, but what would have been the financial impact had this uh, referendum to create the city of Eagles Landing? What would have been the financial impact if that referendum had passed? Yeah, well, um, Moody's and Standard and Poor, um, when they heard about this proposal to, you know, create the city of Eagles Landing by taking part of the city of Stockbridge, I mean, they definitely sent warning signals, um, sent analyst reports saying, you know, don't do this or else this will negatively affect the, uh, you know, the bond ratings of these areas, mainly because the city of Stockbridge is currently, uh, embroiled in a, a number of different debt instruments, basically a number of different municipal bond contracts. And those bond contracts are based off of the assessed taxable value of the land and also the number of people in the city who are paying taxes, you know, to, to pay the bond back. If had Eagles Landing taken, uh, 
you know, these parts of Stockbridge. And essentially, they were trying to take half of the city of Stockbridge. Um, that would have obviously impacted uh, Stockbridge's ability to pay back its bonds because now it has less taxable land and has less people um, paying taxes to help pay bonds off. Not to mention, you know, the services that, you know, helping to pay for the services that Stockbridge provides anyway. So, you know, Moody sent a, you know, they sent up a flag and said, you know, uh, this is not going to be good. But what's important is that Moody said that not only would this be bad for Stockbridge, but they, um, their analysts forecast that it would be bad for every single city in the state of Georgia, that all of their credit and bond ratings could be impacted, um, essentially because of the precedent that would have been established had Eagles Landing taken half of Stockbridge. Um, the, the logic here being, if, if Eagles Landing is allowed to do it, then there's nothing to stop other cities from being formed in the same way, you know, impacting the way that, you know, if you're able to take other cities' land and people from other cities, then you end up you end up basically kind of curtailing those cities' abilities to pay back their bond obligation. It, it would that's the kind of danger that could have been spread across the entire state had this thing went through. Yeah, so th- this vote didn't go through, and so maybe our listeners could be reasonably wondering why we're bringing them such old news. Uh, but this is an issue that has not been fully resolved, and some of the currents of this issue seem to go through, seem to be a continuation of the story of the the metro Atlanta region's development going all the way back five or six decades. What role do you think race plays here? For anyone who's interested in the intersection of race and public policy, you might be familiar with concepts like redlining or gerrymandering. And my kind of uninformed opinion when I first came across your reporting about this situation was that it, was that it almost read like a gerrymandering for wealth. Or, But do you think that the people who wanted to form the city of Eagles Landing had racist intentions? And does it matter what their intentions were if the impacts were racially disparate anyways? Right. It doesn't matter what their intentions were. Of course, you know, everyone that I, I spoke with the principal architects of the Eagles Landing proposal, you know, obviously none of them, I mean, they're both white. They would never admit that they were doing this for racist reasons. That said, the optics of it definitely lend themselves to there being uh, racism at the heart of this. Uh, now, to be fair, the, the new city that Eagles Landing would have created actually would not have been a majority white city. Um, as has been the case with most of the uh, other most of the other cities that have formed in Metro Atlanta, uh, this one actually would have been a little bit. Uh, it, it would actually have been very racially diverse: African Americans and whites and, and Latinos, pretty well represented. But where the race part comes in is basically in two different places. One is in the people that would be left behind: Stockbridge. Is basically uh, is a a pretty um, diverse city right now. But the parts of Stockbridge that Eagles Landing wanted to take uh, were the ones that were most sparsely populated with African-Americans. And not to mention, it would have taken away kind of more wealthier um, African-Americans to put them in the Eagles Landing. So who would have been left behind is a Stockbridge that was more not only more african-american but poorer so the poor black families left behind in stockbridge they would have been more racially isolated in this region 
and it, you know, stands should be repeated that you know Eagles Landing, very wealthy neighborhood. Like I said, it was it's anchored around a this huge golf course, country club, a lot of celebrities that live there, a lot of actors, singers, rappers, and so forth. Um, so it so the the where racism comes in is in the exclusion of, of kind of poor of poor black people who are left behind in the city of Stockbridge. Um, the second way that it plays out is it, it, it absolutely ends up becoming a gerrymander. And as it happens, the city of Stockbridge has a lawsuit out um, against the county and the state, really. Uh, well, really against the Eagles Landing uh, proposal, saying that that, that would have um, created a, a gerrymander. It would have created a violation of the Voting Rights Act by creating a gerrymandered situation where, again, the people left behind in the city of Stockbridge would have actually have had um, less, le- they, they would they, they would have had less voting power to elect someone uh, who represents their interests. And not to mention um, the black people who are pulled into the Eagles Landing area, they would have even less voting power for who they would be, who, for who they would want to vote for. And I don't believe that that lawsuit has been, um, uh, has been resolved quite yet, but, you know, also just, personally from talking to the people who are at the head of the Eagles Landing proposal, they definitely spoke about parts of, you know, much of the city of Stockbridge being undesirable um, and them not wanting to shop with those people, not wanting to, you know, socialize in that part of town. They You know, the Eagles Landing group definitely wanted to create their own isolated island of wealth um, such that they would never have to deal with the city of Stockbridge and the people who live in there. Well, and this too, this came shortly after uh, Stockbridge became a city that was completely governed by African Americans, right? They had a, an all black city council and a black. Oh mayor. yeah. Yeah. I totally left that out. I mean, I, it, it, it just so happens that when the people, you know, people from the Eagles landing neighborhood decided that they wanted to secede from Stockbridge was right when Stockbridge, had elected its first mayor and its first um, all-black city council for the first time in its 100-year history. Uh, conveniently, that's when Eagles Landing wanted to break away. And, and you know, it was be, you know, part of it was because they did not want to be governed by uh, an all-black city government. So you would think with a process with such heavy implications related to finances and development that this might be a difficult process to establish a city in Georgia. Uh, But what kind of process did the uh, group from Eagles Landing go through uh, to create this petition and and how difficult a process was it? It's it's not a difficult process to start a new city uh, in Georgia. Basically, all you need is... uh, you need to have a nonprofit group. You need to have a uh, one of your legislators uh, who will introduce a bill to, you know, allow your neighborhood to vote on statehood. And even though this Eagles Landing proposal was something unique, you know, again, because, you know, they're taking parts of another city to start a new city, uh, they still were able to follow the same kind of lenient proposal, uh, I'm sorry, uh, protocol, uh, to, you know, get the vote for cityhood. The, the hardest part, if anything, is, you know, getting people to vote for it. Uh, you know, once you have cleared, you know, the initial hurdles, then it's your job to get out, go out and tell the people like, hey, we're trying to start this new city. 
uh, and then it, you know, it goes on to a ballot referendum, and then you, you know, hope for the best with voters. Um, so, so based on on your reporting, um, are there changes to the cityhood process that you think the state legislature should make, or or changes that experts who pay attention to this would suggest the legislature consider? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that number one, I mean, it, it should go with, without saying that nobody should be able to take land and people away from another city and just start a new city. Yeah, that seems like a very obvious thing. But, you know, for whatever reason, there's nothing in the Georgia law that says that you can't do that, which is why he was landing um, the proposal got as far as it did. Um, you know, and then um, there probably should be some kind of uh, petition threshold showing that you have got you already have a critical mass of people in your neighborhood who are interested in seeing this happening. And I don't even mean like a pre-vote thing where you have to, you know, have a certain number of people say before a ballot referendum vote that they definitely want a city, but just, you know, just something that says that they're even interested in it, that they even know about it. You know, a lot of people in neighborhoods, they, in these new cities, oftentimes they don't even know. Uh, I met a lot of people um, from some of the newer cities. They didn't even know that they had the city. You know, it was a lot of, you know, it's kind of in the interest of a lot of people uh, who are pushing these city of projects in some ways, it's in their interest not to let a lot of people know, um, because the more, you know, it increases the chances that they'll run into people who are not interested in something like this happening. But but I think that they should definitely have, there should be some kind of petition that shows that, that people are at least aware that someone is planning to, you know, give them a new address for where they live. And I also think that, they, you know, obviously, whatever city is created, that it's vetted to make sure that it complies with all the laws of the land, especially civil rights laws and, you know, fair housing laws, voting rights laws. A lot of, you know, in a lot of these situations, the voting power of, of the people, including in these cities, sometimes gets diluted, you know, such as what situation with, with Stockbridge and Eagles Landing. Um, but nobody, there's no, there's nothing in the process that vets new city of proposals for whether they comply with voting rights laws, civil rights laws, and things of that nature. So, I mean, there just should be, right now, the only vetting that's done is to see if it, if the city itself will be financially viable. That's the only vetting that the proposal gets. It doesn't even, there's not, there's not even vetting that says, that um, shows whether the city would have a, a, uh, a negative financial impact on other areas around it or other cities around it. it all, the vetting is only about whether the proposal before them uh, will be financially viable. So, you know, there, there should just be like more rigorous vetting um, with these proposals before they even are considered uh, to become law. And uh, just to wrap up, is there anything important about this story that I may have missed in my questions? I think it's important. Well, you know, Georgia legislative session for 2019 just started or is just starting up. You're going to see a lot of city hood proposals uh, in this session. You might even see Eagles Landing trying to come up again to, to have their bill go through again. And um, what's important to understand is that um, nothing has been resolved, right? Like the Eagles Landing ballot was voted down, but you know, it, it's still a really low threshold for starting a city. There's still nothing that says that you can't take land and people away from other cities. 
Um, nothing really has changed. Uh, the state legislature is going to be looking into it, and hopefully they'll get these things fixed. But right now, it's still kind of the wild, wild west. I mean, it's you know, I, I, it's a series of Brexits going on around Atlanta, and uh, you know, we, we there's a lot of media attention right now for the Brexit that's going on over in Europe. But you know, it's it's actually happening uh, right here in the United States, where it's kind of the splintering of cells and. Um, you know, we should probably take a really hard look at what's going on before this trend starts to spread across the country, right? You know, the, the country is still heavily segregated, um, especially in its urban areas. Um, if everyone, if every city and every state decided this is the way that they were going to do it, it would just solidify and cement the segregation, both racial and economic, that we're already experiencing here in the, in the nation. Yeah, well, this is an issue that we will be keeping a close eye on. It, it seems to wrap up a lot of really important things around race, around wealth, around community building, and, and things that honestly, to me, seem a lot more important than where you put a cheesecake factory. Um, so with that, we will wrap it there. Okay. But, uh, Breton, we uh, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, come back on anytime. Great. Thanks so much. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.